You're familiar with the Christmas story, but let's read it again. I'll read it to you. It's dark where you are. And Mom always said, don't read by candlelight, so let me read it to you. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. Behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now someone decided to write a modern-day parody of that familiar Christmas story, and the way he put it goes like this. And there were in the same country children keeping watch over their stockings by the fireplace. And lo, Santa Claus came upon them, and they were sore afraid. And Santa said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people who can afford them. For unto you will be given great feasts of turkey, dressing and cake, many presents. And this shall be a sign to you. You will find the presents wrapped in bright paper, lying beneath a tree adorned with tinsel, colored balls and lights. And suddenly there will be with you a multitude of relatives and friends praising you and saying, Thank you so much. It was just what I wanted. And it shall come to pass, as the friends and relatives have gone away into their own homes, the parents shall say to one another, What a mess to clean up. I'm tired. Let's go to bed and pick it up tomorrow. Thank goodness Christmas only comes once a year. And they go with haste unto their cold beds, and they find their desired rest. Well, that's obviously a contrast between what Christmas really is and what Christmas has really become over the years. Far, far different from how it was originally celebrated. Now, there's an astonishing fact, and that is most Americans say that they have some religious affiliation, and of all of the Americans who claim to be Christians belong to Christ, fewer than half of the same Americans who claim to be Christians say that the most important part of Christmas is the birth of Christ. That's in a poll. The Barna Research Group did a poll of Americans. 88% of those surveyed identified themselves as Christians, yet only 37% said the birth of Jesus Christ is the most significant aspect of Christmas. (laughs) Hello? You wonder, well, what is it then that is the most important aspect of Christmas? They said, or 44% said, family time is the most important aspect of Christmas. Now understand, Christmas time is a great time for family time. It's a great time to get your family together 
to tell them that the most important aspect of Christmas is Jesus' time. That it's His birth. That it's His season. That it marks His incarnation. His coming into the world. That is the most important part of Christmas. It always was. It is now. It always will be. Whether Americans deem it so, whether they vote it so by the polls or not, it still is. Yet for many... This time of the year is the most depressing of all times of the year. Many, many people who have lost loved ones. Many people whose expectations in relationships aren't what they thought they would be suffer greatly during this time. The director of mental health or mental hygiene in Southern California said, the Christmas season is marked by a greater emotional stress and more acts of violence than any other time of the year. Perhaps that's because almost everyone thinks that Christmas ought to be a time of peace, a time of joy, a time of great satisfaction, and for so many it is not. And with that comes a deep, deep disappointment, and in some cases, depression. Yeah, I know people still say Merry Christmas, they'll celebrate gifts, they'll put smiles on their faces, but where is that deep sense of satisfaction, joy, that marks those who know Jesus Christ? So many celebrate it, but so few understand it. It's sort of like having a birthday party without inviting the one whose birthday it is. That's how many celebrate Christmas. They neglect the one they're throwing the party for, and that's Jesus. Well, Jesus was born, as you know, we read here, to a poor family from northern Israel. They made their way down to Bethlehem. That was the city of their forefathers. Bethlehem, a very, very poor family. Jesus born out in a stable. Now, here we are, about 2,000 years removed from that event, And yet we still celebrate that birthday. Now, I don't know how many celebrate your birth. In fact, some of you don't want to know or let other people know when your birth was because it's just another reminder that you're getting old. But there are people who celebrate your birth. Wife, husband, friends, parents, children. But Jesus born 2,000 years ago, and yet the world still remembers him and celebrates his birth. Now, even a, a prince of a country would have a national celebration, or a king would have a national celebration, but only by that country. But the whole world. And I've been to Iraq last year, and I was in Jordan last year, and in these predominantly Muslim countries, you can find that it's Christmas time in those countries. There's still the celebration of it complete with some manger scenes in certain places. Why is his birth celebrated? Of all the people that have ever lived, why is his birth so celebrated as it is? I can think of one word that would describe Jesus, though there are many, and that is the word unique, which if you look it up means one of a kind. There's only one like Jesus. Let me give you a few reasons why. Jesus was unique because he had a very, very unique birth. Unlike our birth. Here's a couple reasons why. He was born of a virgin. 
His mother was a virgin. Now, I'm sure there's a lot of wonderful things that you could say about your own mother, but no one here could say that she was a virgin when you were born. You would never dare say that. But Jesus Christ, when He was born, His mother was still a virgin. She had never had a contact with a man, no sexual relations with her husband-to-be, Joseph. In fact, when Mary was told she was pregnant, it was news to her. She was astonished. How can these things be? And believe me, Joseph, who was engaged to her, he was angry enough to want to divorce her. The message came. The power of the Holy Spirit will be upon you. The glory of the highest will overshadow you. So the thing which is conceived in you is of the Holy Spirit. Born of a virgin, that's unique. Being conceived by the Holy Spirit, born in the womb of a teenage virgin from Nazareth, made Jesus very unique. He was man. He came in flesh. He had blood. He had bones. He had human organs. Which means as a human being, he could suffer He could be tempted. He could relate with all of the things you and I go through in life. So he could then die as a man. Being born of a virgin, genetically, by God, he was also God, fully God, in human flesh. Which would make him unique because though he could die as a man, he was sinless. He didn't have the nature of Adam that we all have who are born. So he was a perfect sacrifice, a sinless sacrifice, one without spot, without blemish, unmarred, untainted by human sin. He was in all points, the scripture says, tempted like we are, yet he had no sin. God in human flesh. He was the only person who ever existed before he was born. You began your existence the moment you were conceived in the womb. Jesus lived way before that. The birth was the human entrance into the world. As it says in the scripture, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Then the Word became flesh, and He lived among us. So He's unique in His birth, born of a virgin. There's another reason that made His birth unique, and that is His birth was predicted No one ever predicted my birth. No, it wasn't Uncle Fred. Thus saith Uncle Fred, a boy named Skip shall be born unto thee next year. I was born. It wasn't foretold. Now, some did try to foretell my son's birth. Uh, When my wife was pregnant, it was funny how many people came up with a word from the Lord Some said, God spoke to me and said, it was a boy. It's a boy in your womb. And of course, a lot of other people came up and said, the Lord spoke to my heart and told me it's a girl in your womb. And I heard that. I figured they got a 50-50 chance. (laughs) If it's a boy, they're going to say they're a prophet. If it's a girl, I wonder if they'll say anything at all. If they'll just fade away, I don't know. But Jesus' birth was foretold by many different people throughout history, hundreds of years before he was born. 
It was predicted where he would come from, what he would be like. One of the most famous scriptures was by a prophet named Micah who predicted the coming of the Holy One to Bethlehem. And we see it unfold right here in the Gospel of Luke as we just read. Micah, through the Spirit of God, speaking of Bethlehem, said, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, or in Judah, though you be the smallest among the thousands of Judah, yet from you shall come forth to me the one who will be the ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old from everlasting. The everlasting one was predicted to be born in Bethlehem. Isaiah predicted he would be born of a virgin. Isaiah predicted that when he died, he would die between two criminals. He also predicted that he would be buried in the tomb of a rich man. Many predicted that he would be born of the tribe of Judah. And one predicted that he would be born not only of the tribe of Judah, but under the lineage of King David himself. All predicted hundreds of years before he actually came to earth. One of my favorite illustrations that tells us the uniqueness about Jesus and his birth is an illustration in the form of a little book by a mathematician named Peter Stoner who took the predictions of Jesus Christ and mapped them all out in a book called Science Speaks. Here was his premise. What are the odds of anybody in history doing, fulfilling the predictions that were made of Jesus Christ. And he found that there were about 300 predictions. And so he started small saying, what are the odds of one man in history, any man, any person, fulfilling eight of the predictions made about Jesus Christ since they were predicted before his birth? He said, well, the odds of that, according to his expertise, would be one in ten to the 17th power. Now, the way he illustrated it was very unique. He said, if you took the entire state of Texas and filled it two feet thick full of silver dollars, you would have roughly that number. If you marked one in advance, you blindfolded somebody, told them to march through Texas, the odds of that person finding the one that you pre-marked would be one in ten to the 17th power, or the odds of one person fulfilling those direct eight predictions made of Christ. After having fun with that, he said, what would the odds of one man in history be in fulfilling 16 of those predictions? Where he would be born, how he would be born, how he would die, on and on. 16 of them. He said it would be 1 in 10 to the 45th power. Using silver dollars again, Stoner provokes the imagination. He said you could take that many silver dollars and make a huge solid ball of silver that would be so big that if at the center of the ball you stuck the earth, you could go to the circumference in all directions 30 times the distance of the earth to the sun, which is 93 million miles, so 93 times million times 30 would be from the center to the circumference. Pick a silver dollar and mark it. Send somebody in to find it. The odds that he does will be 1 in 10 to the 45th power. The odds of one man fulfilling 16 prophecies. After having so much fun with that, Stoner said, what would the odds of one man in history be in fulfilling 48 predictions? He said it would be 1 in 10 to the 157th power. Silver dollars were impractical, he understood at that point to illustrate it. So he went down to the world of electrons, 
and said, well, if you could take one inch of electrons stacked next to each other, and if you were to count the electrons about 250 a minute nonstop, it would take you 19 million years to count 250 electrons per minute that equal a linear inch. 19 million years to count an inch of electrons. It would take you 19 million years times 19 million years times 19 million years to count one cubic inch of electrons. And if you could take one electron, that's roughly the number he was talking about. If you could mark one of them, get some wizard with an electron microscope to find the one you pre-selected, if he could do it, it would be 1 in 10 to the 157th power. So do you see how ridiculous it is when you share with someone that Jesus fulfilled prophecy and they go, it's a coincidence, dude. (laughs) No, it is not. Jesus is unique in his birth because of the predictions that were made that came true. He's also unique in his birth because of the events that surrounded his birth. I don't know what happened on the day of your birth. I did a little digging and found out that the day I was born, nothing really great happened. Nothing monumental happened. President Eisenhower signed a bill that day, the day I was born, that upped the minimum wage from 75 cents an hour to a dollar an hour. That's what happened on the day of my birth. Oh, yes, that's right. And something else happened. The Brooklyn Dodgers won in the World Series against the New York Yankees, something I'm sure the Yankees never forgave them for. That's what happened when I was born. But when Jesus was born, heavenly messengers attended his birth. Angels came and spoke to shepherds. Men from the east saw this huge astronomical display and they came all the way from Persia to Bethlehem to see this baby that was born. Very, very unique. So he's unique because of his birth. He's also unique because of his unique purpose. You know, Jesus was the only one ever born with the purpose of dying. Ever think about that? You as parents have some desire, some goal, some plan, some purpose for your child, and I'm sure that death isn't included in that plan. You want your child to live, not die. You want your child to grow up and develop and learn and become a doctor, a lawyer, something. Some plan, some desire. But God the Father had planned for His Son death. As Paul said, Jesus became obedient to death. The death on the cross. He obeyed the plan of the Father, which is that He would come to the earth and die on a cross. Now that was also sort of predicted when He was born, right? Remember the wise men that came from the east? They brought gifts to Him. The first two we understand. The third is a bit puzzling. First they brought him gold. We understand that. That's fit for a king. In fact, it was a custom in ancient times that you never approach a king's presence without some gift of gold. Why? Because gold is the metal for kings. It's the king of all metals. It's fit for the king of all mankind. Then they brought him frankincense, a very fragrant smelling stuff. Priests used it in sacrifice in the temple. The meal offerings in Jerusalem were sanctified with frankincense by the priest. Beautiful smelling stuff. So gold, fit for the king of kings. Frankincense, which is fitting for our great high priest, Jesus Christ. 
The third one, myrrh, is a bit curious because myrrh was used in ancient times as embalming fluid. That was its purpose. Remember when Jesus died, they brought a hundred pounds of myrrh and aloes. That's how they entombed the body, was in this spice called myrrh. You know, it, it sounds insulting to a parent. We brought gold for your baby. Oh, you shouldn't have. Thank you. And we brought incense. It smells so sweet like in the nibble. Oh, thank you. And we also brought some embalming fluid. <laughs> yeah, have you ever given a gift that it's, it bombs? It, it doesn't work. Seemingly, this was one of those gifts, but not so in what it predicted. Because being an embalming fluid, it was the substance that when it is crushed, gives off its scent of beauty. And didn't Isaiah predict that he would be pierced for our iniquities and crushed for our transgressions? The chastisement for our peace would be upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Very, very picturesque and predictive of Jesus Christ. Max Lucado wrote a great little book, and in it he imagines that Mary is holding her son the night that he was born and understands the plan, knows who he is, and would pray like this. Rest well, tiny hands, for though you belong to a king, you will touch no satin, you will own no gold, you will grab no pen, you will guide no brush. No, your tiny hands are reserved for works more precious. To touch a leper's open wound, to wipe a widow's weary tear, to claw the ground of Gethsemane. Your hands, so tiny, so tender, so white, clutched tonight in an infant's fist. They aren't destined to hold a scepter nor wave from a palace balcony. They are reserved instead for a Roman spike that will staple them to a Roman cross. So his unique birth demonstrated his unique purpose, to die on the cross. There are more things about him, but one that comes to mind readily, Jesus is unique because of his unique life. You see, while he lived on the earth, while he ministered to people, he had a goal in mind. It wasn't just to teach some nice things, wave at a few people and make them feel good for a week. He said, I have come to seek and to save those who are lost. I have come to reach out to those that the world wouldn't reach out to, the world would deem as insignificant, the kind of people that even religious people would pass by. I've come for them, those that feel weighed by sin and burdened down by affliction. I've come for them. And with that goal as a life, he got into some pretty precarious situations. One, he went to Samaria. Jews never went there. They stayed out of the way of Samaria. In fact, the woman that Jesus spoke to said, Why are you even talking to me? Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. But this was Jesus who had an appointment with her. Then there was Matthew. He was a tax collector, and nobody even then liked the IRS. They were scorned by the Jewish elite, but there Jesus was at Matthew's party, sitting in the midst of them with everybody in the house, and the religious folks walked by and scorned at Jesus. Why would he, being so righteous, be in the midst of such sinners? They thought Jesus didn't hear their mumbling. And he stood and said to them, 
I have not come to call the righteous. I've come to call sinners to repentance. I didn't come to call people who think that they're good enough. In other words, if you guys think you're good enough, I have no message for you. But I have come for those who believe they're not good enough, who feel the weight, the burden, the sin. People like Matthew, who knows he's bad off. And I'm the kind of a doctor that gives house calls. That's why I'm here. Inferring to these religious leaders, you're a bunch of quacks. He came with that goal, that purpose in mind. So his mission was a spiritual mission, chiefly. Yes, he healed sick folks. He uh, raised a few from the dead. He did a lot of that kind of stuff, being the kind of savior that he was. But chiefly, his mission was a spiritual mission. His first message was repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He said, above everything else in life, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. So he is unique. Great word to describe Jesus. Unique because he had a unique birth, a unique purpose, a unique life. And needless to say, anyone who encounters him will have a unique experience. One that will change a life forever. That's what church is all about. A group of people who have been touched by the unique one. I remember the night... I asked Jesus to be my Savior. It was very unique. I found out that Jesus was not like what I thought he was. He was very different. He wasn't like some said he was. He was himself in all of his grandeur, glory, forgiveness, grace, love. He was real. And he's not confined to a celebration once a year. He's not confined to just the manger scene. There was a family that uh, loved to go out on Christmas Eve like lots of folks do and watch the houses, the display in the neighborhood. And they came to one particular house where there was Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. And the grandmother in the car spoke up and said, Look at the animals and Mary and Joseph and Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? And the little granddaughter, real honest, She piped up and she said, yeah, it really is nice, but there's only one thing that bugs me. When is Jesus ever going to grow up? He's the same size he was last year. And I I wonder, when is Jesus going to grow up in your life? When are you going to stop making him just a little innocent baby in the manger? When are you going to let him grow up and be the adult Jesus who came to die on the cross and call men and women to repentance? That's what the adult Jesus came to do. Not just to be a little baby. Not to be an ornament. To be celebrated for his life, his death, his resurrection, which gives life. That's what Christmas is all about. I want to wish you all a Merry Christmas. We're going to sing another couple of songs. Before I do, I want to pray, all of us together. Pray for those in need. Pray for those here who perhaps haven't made that commitment to Jesus Christ. Pray that you let him grow up and make his demands on you as Lord. Father, we thank you for this season. What a grand time of year it is. What an awesome time of year it is. 
And so many of us are filled with such anticipation and joy. The thrill, the thought that God would come packaged in flesh, it staggers us. It always has. We pray it always will. And Father, we pray tonight for those who have come in our midst. They're our guests. They're loved by You. And as unique as You are and as as unique as Your Son is, You want to do a unique work in their hearts. We pray that You do it. We pray, Lord, that those who have come who have been very religious, like the Pharisees or the Sadducees, who have been very powerful, perhaps like Herod, or those who have come and are very, very simple, like the shepherds. Whatever strata of life, if that life tonight doesn't have the life of Christ living in it, we pray, Father, that by invitation, by their invitation, you would come and live as not just the baby Jesus, but as the Savior of the world, the King of kings, the one who came, as the myrrh suggested, to die, be entombed, and conquer death. As we continue to pray for just a moment, it's dark, but I could see your hand if you were to raise it up and say, Skip, tonight, this Christmas Eve, I want to give my life to Jesus Christ. I'm ready to surrender. Raise your hand up and I'll pray for you as we close the service. You're raising it up saying, I want to know Jesus personally tonight as my Lord. Raise it up and keep it up so I can see it. God bless you and you right up front and you. You up front here. Anyone else? Raise it up high. Toward the back and in the middle. I see your hand toward the front and the middle. Whether you're in the back, in the balcony, in the overflow... Raise a lifted hand. It's the hand, the acknowledgement of need. Father, those who have that raised hands right now, so many of them, so many of them, Lord, around us, like a, a man or woman drowning, reaching out their hand, Lord, I pray that you would reach down, grab a hold of that life. The hand signifies a heart that is willing to turn to you. And we know, Lord, that whoever comes to you, you will never cast out. You promised that. And tonight, Father, we pray that you would infuse each one of these with new life. 